This podcast is brought to you by Prolongevity, the award-winning eight-week program that can transform the lives of people with prediabetes, type 2 diabetes, and many other lifestyle-related illnesses. Founded by Graham Phillips, the pharmacist who gave up drugs. Hi, and welcome to the Prolongevity podcast. And I'm delighted to have with me today uh, the vociferous Dr. Tro. Uh, vociferous both on, particularly on social media, and I'm sure we'll get to that. But Tro has his own podcast, which has got, I don't know, how many followers have you got, Tro? I think we hit 6 million downloads not so long ago. And it started, what, around 2018? Yeah, it's been four years. Me and Brian were just talking about it. It's been four years uh, we've been working on this podcast. And uh, four years, you know, more than four years, we've been escaping the current medical system in the United States, which is a bit different than the medical system in the UK. So Tro is a bit of a media personality um, of his own, and all I would say is don't cross him on Twitter. Um, But I thought we might start, Tro, with your own personal health journey, because I think I've heard you describe yourself as a 350-pound physician or something like that. Um, And of course, that's not the case today. And there's a common theme here of everyone I've had on this podcast, which is, like myself, all the medics um, have been conventionally trained and at a certain point realised that the conventional training that we've followed and believed in and has been inculcated upon us, myself included, as a conventionally trained pharmacist, eat less, move more, take a statin and all the rest of it, doesn't work. And I think we've all arrived, sadly, independently at this place, not through our training, but through our own personal health journeys. And then we've kind of got involved with our patients from there. So actually, I think our training lets us down. But I'm just very keen because, I mean, you're, you're very known in the States, but less so in the UK. Just tell me about your own background and your own health journey and kind of what, how you ended up where you are now. Uh, well, it matters how far back you want to go. So I guess that we'll ask. <laughs> yeah, so the start was uh, I grew up in a household of everybody, everybody was obese. Um, extended family with obesity and diabetes, um, you know, really had a passion to change things. And I remember being uh, 12 or 13 years old in my doctor's office for my 13th birthday or 12th birthday. And I was the weight I am now at the age of 12. And um, I was, you know, following in the footsteps of my older brother and my parents. And I remember sitting in the doctor's office for about two and a half hours waiting for my uh, annual physical, only to have him put me on the scale and tell me I'm going to be just like my parents and that I have to go home and eat less and I have to exercise more. And that was literally his words. And I uh, remember it to this day. And it hit me. um, And I remember thinking like, what the hell, man? You made me sit for two and a half hours on your, you know, in your waiting room. Like, if you want me to exercise, put a freaking exercise bike in there, right? Like, I remember being 12 thinking this, like, like anyway, so that really sparked fire in me and unfortunately took a downturn. I, I you know, basically was struggled with eating in, at all. I was like, I can't eat now. You know, doctor said I can't eat and uh, said eat less. I didn't eat for like the next three or four weeks. And when I did go back to eating, what he had said was, you know, make sure you eat a lot of vegetables. So I went and ate a lot of vegetables. So really, I had probably something like anorexia, 
you know, is a beast person with anorexia, you know, yeah. which people don't find at a young age. And this was my understanding uh, that I had to eat. I had to stop eating. And if I was going to eat, I was going to eat vegetables. But anyway, that little passion in my butt, I'm like, I have to beat the, the gene. I have to, you know, I can't go down the footsteps of my parents. And, you know, the doctor said I had to lose weight. And here I am not eating and eating vegetables. Completely decimated my mental health over the next three to five years. Uh, and, you know, of course, eventually I did gain, lose some weight initially, but then I gained it all back. Yeah. You know, by the time I was 21, all the weight was back. Uh but I had grown a little bit, so I didn't make anything of it. My food relationship didn't change, and I still kind of, you know, oscillated between carbohydrates and protein and vegetables and tried to be as, you know, plant-based as I could. And uh, then, you know, you go to med school. <laughs> yeah, you go to med school, and you put on 10 pounds a year. You know, you go to residency, you gain 10 pounds a year. You know, I'm genetic. I would say, like, I have the genetic potential to be very obese. Right. I have that genetic potential. Right. Probably more so than, let's say, my wife or anybody else. Right. Most people, I'd say, certainly, you know, there's something there. The drive to eat is there. But anyway, I found myself at 350 pounds. Wow. And I'm a board certified doctor, um, you know, BMI well above 35, you know, which is the marker of obesity. I was probably class three obesity at that point. Uh, just to give an idea, very the most severe obesity you can find yourself. And, uh, you know, I was very, you know, I, I would say I'm a, you know, better than, I guess everybody says it, but, you know, in terms of my board exams, I was in the top 10% of my board exam. You know, I was in the top decile, right? And uh, I was chief resident. I trained at a Yale-affiliated internal medicine program in uh at Greenwich, uh, Greenwich, Connecticut, and Greenwich Hospital, and uh, you know, I, you know, I was good at what I did. In fact, my wife, who loves and cares about me, it doesn't matter what my weight is, Rosette, um, you know, she saw me struggling with weight and wanting to lose weight at 350 pounds, and she, she came to me, and you'll appreciate this. She said, "If this, you know, you found a, a diagnosis in my dad. This is what she said. You're a smart doctor, and she's playing me like a fiddle. She's like, you're a smart doctor." You're chief, you were chief resident, you're board certified in internal medicine. Why can't you figure this out? Yep. And he goes, what would you do if this was anything else in medicine? And I told her, I looked at her, she's like, you know, we're going to have our third kid and are you going to be around? So she played my ego and she brought down my emotions and she, you know, kind of harped on the right things. And I was like, well, if this was anything else in medicine, if it was pneumonia, I would go up and read the literature, look at the head-to-head -head studies for each antibiotic. I'd see which one's better. What are the side effects of each antibiotic? I'd read the literature and I would understand how they came to the guidelines, what the guidelines say, and what the primary research shows. Yep. She's like, yeah, that's a great idea, <laughs> you know? And uh, so I did exactly that. I had no skin in the game. If anything, up until that point, I don't remember ever cooking a steak. I was 30-something years old. I had no skin in the game. Bacon, I, I rarely ate bacon. I never had a sausage or anything like that. If anything, I, you know, was more, you know, a standard American diet, but leaned toward my, my idea of health was what the guidelines said. Yep. You know, less, move more, more grains, more fruits, more vegetables, right? 
I, you know, I went for years not eating red meat, having skim milk, low, yeah. low salt. Yeah. yeah just, just, just nonsense. And so anyway, so I didn't start with anything other than what does the literature show, right, as a good evidence-based doctor should do, you know. And I found study after study, all the head-to-head trials were supporting low-carb, meta-analysis supported low-carb. Everything I could find that head-to-head research said low carb is better. And since then, obviously, there's been organizations like your own uh, and the SMHP here in the United States, the Society of Metabolic Health Practitioners, which have aggregated all the data and make it very clear, low carb is better for weight loss and for diabetes. So in any case, I'm like, wait a second, what the hell? If like this was a drug for pneumonia, we would all pick low carb, you know? And so, so you start to see wait a second. Well, then when you see that, you're like, as a doctor, well, why is the conventional messaging, if we have an obesity epidemic, so off from the interventional data? Like, it just doesn't make sense. Yep. Right. And then you go a step further. Let me examine that data. Let me examine the population-based data. Let me examine all the, and you just unravel the bias, right? The industry bias, the standard messaging, the proper kind of like you know, the, the influence over the, the nutrition uh, literature that has happened over the last 50 years. Yeah. Once you, so, so you start an evidence-based approach, an evidence-based assessment, and you see low carbs better, and then you interpret the population-based data and you understand the influences on those data, and you come to a conclusion. And the conclusion is, if you want to lose weight, if you have diabetes, low carb is the best approach. And so I just did that. Yep. Uh, you know, that's that simple. I'm 350 pounds, desperate. I researched, as I would as anything else, and you find the truth. And the truth is, you know, yes, obesity is individual. Yes, there are many other things. It's complicated. But you want to start somewhere, low carb, and uh, start low carb. And it wasn't by much in the literature. It's like a five-pound difference. But shit, I'll take that, you know. I'll take those five pounds. So, um that, then I went on to – so I read probably 3,000 papers, three to 400 diet books from different researchers, scientists on all sides of the spectrum, plant-based, low-carb, high-carb, doesn't matter. Yeah, I read three textbooks. I got board certified in obesity and diabetes specifically on these topics. And then I went on and got board certified in um, obesity medicine, which is there's a certification process in the United States – uh, there's a board certification for that. So can I, I, can I yeah. ask about that? Because sure. we know the conventional wisdom will just reinforce the way to do this is to eat less and move more, right? Yep. Your board certification, what did it cover? And did it just reinforce all the old paradigms at a higher level? Or oh, did it generally yeah. Yeah. knowledge and information? No, no. Uh, 100% it... Uh, you know, it, it did that. So, well, I shouldn't say that. It exposed you to the idea that low-carbohydrate diets are available and an option, which otherwise is not mentioned. But it pretty much says eat shakes, thermodynamics, surgery, medications, right? So it, it includes it kind of like an asterisk in a yeah. positive way, uh, which is atypical compared to conventional medicine, which is low-carb is the devil, you know, and, and saturated fat will kill you. 
so it's now you can use this and and um but yeah fundamentally it's that certification makes you aware of some of the social and, and institutional issues facing people with obesity but it's a baseline of what to start and not a great baseline in of itself that's exactly why we started the society of metabolic health practitioners yeah. and uh and you know mirroring very closely what you guys have done in the uk with the public health collaboration yeah. uh, we are providing a certification and education so people can so we desperately needed that and i'm on the board of directors there because i noticed right away i got all the certification i've been through what i've been through and it's not there for yeah. people to be able to learn so we made the organization so doctors can learn what they need to learn but yes, uh, that's my journey. So anyway, you learn all about all this. I went yep. from 350 pounds to 200 pounds. And I'm like, I can't go back to what I did, yep. which in the United States, it's different. We have an insurance-based system. They pay you pennies for your time. And so you want to yep. see more, more patients in less time. And they pay you to bring patients back more and more and waste money and waste resources. So they... so. The current model in the United States for the insurance-based system is just a flawed system. Not to say that the, you know, the UK system has is better, or it's just different flaws. And so, tell, you know, tell me about that. So in the UK, um, and, and I'm not knocking doctors, right? I, I'm knocking the system that forces the doctors into a particular path. Just like as a pharmacist, I think I should be paid more for what I don't dispense. Than what I do dispense, right? So in pharmacy, it's a paper chase. There, I mean, there are other things. There is a public health aspect of our pharmacy contract. So we are supposed to get involved in public health campaigns, but it tends to be around sexual health, smoking, and so on. But prim yeah. primarily, as a community pharmacist, my income derives from dispense as many prescriptions as you can, as fast as you can, at the lowest cost, and get them out the door. Whereas I think the greater value, and to give this in financial terms, so the UK drugs bill is about 20 billion, of which 15 billion is primary care. The total bill for UK pharmacy, people like me nationwide, is less than 3 billion. So, you're, so all the money goes on the drug bill. We're a very small cost, but, but all our incentives go towards making that figure and if we don't dispense a prescription, and that's what we're ethically supposed to do, we're supposed to check whether people need their repeat prescription. We're shooting ourselves in the foot financially, um, and we're not paid to do it. So the whole system is cockeyed. Now, uh, as you know, my, my partner's a GP. I have lots of GP friends and colleagues. Broadly speaking, how does the system work? Well, it basically, you look for symptoms, and then you suppress the symptoms with drugs lip service paid to lifestyle change but you go to conference after conference and it's a lifestyle change and the word lifestyle change is mentioned and then you're on to sgl2 inhibitors or whatever the latest thing is and there's no focus on it because it doesn't work well, it doesn't work because none of them know about it so i suspect our system is probably not as bad as yours but i think it's broadly speaking similar, and I think that's probably generally speaking true worldwide. We've all got versions of the same thing. And do you think that's fair? Yeah, yeah. Without getting into the you know socialized versus uh, privatized, 
systems and those the, the usual slip ups in those debates, you know, yeah. ultimately speaking, we're dealing with doctors who are burnt out, who have yeah. are apathetic, apathetic towards lifestyle interventions and not yeah. trained in lifestyle interventions, are trained in making a diagnosis and prescribing a medication, have very little time to actually dig into root cause, be curious and help people change their lives. They don't understand the impact of nutrition on their health. They're not motivational interviewers. They don't understand obesity uh, at its fundamental physiologic level or the psychological aspects or the emotional aspects at all. And so they're not positioned to be, they're not trained nor positioned to be uh, people who can make, help make behavior change possible. So yeah. fundamentally doctor and they're incentivized uh, by illness and not by health and they're incentivized to generate visits because that's how they're paid. So they're fundamentally speaking, the system is literally against patients getting better, you know? Um, and, and I don't think it's not the people. I think the doctors generally want, right? I want, they would love to see their patients get better. Yep. Right. But it's, it's, it's not, the system is literally designed. They're too apathetic. They don't have the tools. They don't have the time, right? As a doctor, the system is set up not to incentivize spending time and making behavior change possible. And patients are disenfranchised because most doctors suck and, excuse my language, right? They're just, you know, arrogant people who say, don't question me because your Google search is not as good as my, you know, degree. And, uh, and, you know, most people with obesity are disenfranchised because they've been sold supplements and drugs and miracle pills their whole life. So they think that there's really no cure. So it's a, it's, it's just a terrible system overall thrown through, whether it's medic, medical, you know, psychological, emotional, financial, every single thing is set up for patients to not get well when it comes yeah. to chronic disease. Yeah. Sorry, so that was a long answer. <laughs> No, no, but I, I think it's important people understand because I can't remember who I heard first heard to say say this, but you know, once you change the paradigm as I've done, as you've done, and you start offering people lifestyle advice, and you understand the science at the level of the organism, at the level of the cell, and at the subcellular level, everything makes sense. And I, you know, for me, the inspiration is. Yeah, my, my patients lose weight, but the inf inspiration for me is the light coming back into their eyes. And it's the it's the health span, it's the health coming back into their body, which I never achieve with their medication. And I mean, I need a living, of course I need a living, but it, it's so much more satisfying than anything I did. And my pharmacy group, we had at one stage 10 pharmacies, we won all the national awards and most of them twice. I was at a very senior level in my pharmacy profession. We literally, during that period, reshaped pharmacy in its entirety, created a whole new professional body, a new regulatory structure. I won all these awards. I was literally at the top of my profession. And I ended up frustrated because for all of that, how much good was I really doing my, my patients? And then I discovered this on my own personal journey, implemented it with a few people, and the difference was just astonishing and I've never looked back and that was where prolongevity came from so once you see it you can't unsee it 
And once you understand it, it's impossible. I, I literally can't go back to that way of practicing now. It's impossible for me. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'll tell you, I'll tell you right now that. Um, so once you go into literature and once you start affecting people's lives, you know, I don't really, I can't really go back to the same style of. Uh, practicing. I can't go back into that insurance system where I just have to churn patients quickly and bring them back. Um, and so, you know, when you start heading towards how to live with yourself and be happy with the person that you are yeah. and how to uh, keep improving. And when you start to think about how you can, you know, change and improve and be a, more effective you know, I think it's pretty clear that um, how most doctors turn, and there's there's a growing movement. That's why, you know, we started the Society of Metabolic Health Practitioners about two or three years ago, and now we have 500 members, 300 doctors, because we're not the only ones for who are desperate for change. We want to have an impact on the world. Um, yeah, and so I was, you know, um, 350 pounds, and I came to the realization and that uh, uh, what we've and get, the system we have is not acceptable and that we have to change. And so uh, since then, this was like eight years, nine, eight or eight, eight years ago or so that I really started to go into this and look into this. And, uh, you know, I've switched to private practice about five years ago, you know, and I've been laser focused. Uh, in fact, I'm writing now my five year recap. You know, we've done a lot in those five years. Yeah. Uh, incredible amount of work. We were uh, re we were doing telemedicine before it existed. We had remote scales, remote blood pressure cuffs, um, remotely tracking people asynchronously, seamlessly. We were the first practice to, to integrate with Keto Mojo. We were the first practice to integrate with Diet Doctor and offer that. Uh, we, you know, we were the first medical practice in the United States to go to Abbott and say, "Hey, we want to." real-time implement the CGMs into our EMR. Yeah. Um, uh, so uh, we, we've now can do, you know, remote Holter monitors, remote sleep studies. We can remotely monitor CPAPs. We can, you know, blood pressure, pulse oximetry, uh, temperature. You know, we can even do a physical exam completely remotely. We're all throughout the United States. We've helped over a thousand people lose 40,000 pounds. We've published five papers. Um, you know, on binge eating, obesity, diabetes, uh, hypercholesterolemia and hypertriglyceridemia in, on a ketogenic diet. And, you know, now on the board of directors on the SMHP, we're, we're expanding that research even more. We're expanding education even more. So doctors have, you know, they're not like me. They don't have to just go and figure this out. They have a resource to, to do that. And that's what the podcast was about. It can't just be in me and Brian in isolation and a couple of these few people in isolation, Marco Guzella, Eric Westman, Rob Sivis. We have to start to organize uh, and, and educate, you know, how to make lifestyle changes stick and how to make them possible. It has been awesome five years. You know, our yeah. podcast went from nobody listening to over 6 million downloads, you know, our social media reach is at 300,000 now, you know, it's just been a wild, wild ride, you know, uh, and all in the while we get to help thousands of lives, 
you know, and uh, the value of that, I mean, it's selfish. I am doing this because I get emotional value of helping people change the course of their health. So this is a completely selfish endeavor, but it's awesome. You know, it's awesome. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think if your fundamental driver of being a professional isn't altruism, I mean, we want to make a living, of course, but if there's no fundamental altruistic driver, then you're in the wrong business. And the problem is that the system squashes the altruism. So then you either compromise on your principles or you get burnt out or you walk away and do something else or do what you've done, which is be the change agent. Yeah, well, so it's it's very... I, I applaud you for it, my friend. Well, I'm going to tell you, it is incredibly hard, right? It is very, very, very hard on a number of levels. And I don't blame our doctors. You know, I, I blame them in one sense because they've accepted the contracts with the insurance companies. Yeah. So they sign the deals because they're like, oh, I'm desperate for patients, right? They sign the deal with the insurance company or they sign the employee, employee agreement, right? And just realize in the United States, you know, there used to be a pri private practice. Even 10 years ago, it was 75% private practice physicians. Yeah. Hospital systems have bought them out. And why? Every single physician that they buy is $1 million of labs, testing, and hospitalizations per year. Mm. Every hospital, they, every doctor they employ, it's $1 million to them. Right? So they've bought and they've bought, they care about populations. They don't care about patients. Remember, your doctor typically cares about your, their patients. Hospitals yeah. don't. Hospital administrators yeah. don't. Physician practices have bought the biggest buyer of the biggest employer right now in the United States of doctors is an insurance company, right? Whose job it is to lower the cost of medicine, right? Not the morbidity, not the mortality, not the quality of life, the cost of care. Yeah. Right. Okay. So that means less services, less attention, less time from doctors, right? So, you know, there's hospitals who have their influence. There's insurance who have an influence. And the third employer is venture capital, literally mutual funds, stock market, you know, hedge fund people who are going and buying practice up. They're the most hospital, uh, most physician acquisitions today in this past year are venture capital and hedge funds, which yeah. means there is a corporation whose job it is to make money for their stockholders or buying your doctors. This is what we have in America. Yeah. Right. And it's not. Um, and so, yeah, we're trying to make and we we've been expanded. That's the thing. People value what we're doing. We're overwhelmed with patients. We're booked out. We're just hired a new doctor, Dr. Laura Buchanan, who's also on the board of the Society of Metabolic Health Practitioners, because people we are busting at the seams with patients who come to us and say, we just want a doctor who's actually going to listen yeah. and actually yeah. treat us. You know, don't tell me, you know, I have fibromyalgia. Ask me what my symptoms are and, and, you know, figure out what is going on. If there is something going on, maybe it is fibromyalgia, but I want you to listen. I don't want you to yeah. just say, oh, you're just fibromyalgia. You know, I, you have, I have diabetes. Can you help me come off medications? Yeah. Right. We do that regularly. We literally, we sent, uh, we had a patient just this past week who told us, I went back to my primary 
My, I'm out of the diabetic range blood sugar. I'm off two diabetes medications. My blood pressure is down to normal. I'm off two bl uh, blood pressure medications. And when I, and my triglycerides are good. And when I went back to my doctor, I was hoping she would say, be happy for me. She said, that's all great, but you will always be diabetic. And so that's get it out of your head that you're going to be anything else. That was quote unquote what she said. Yeah. And my patient said to me, I am so happy that I have you because without your practice, I don't know what I would have done. You it's know? very interesting because, okay, you've got the American version of it, but your experience of what you do, how the system works or doesn't work, and what individual patients tell you is so similar to what I hear from my prolongevity clients that the fact we've got slightly different accents makes no difference, really. It's the same thing. I mean, I, I think possibly there are some, without getting into the debate around socialised medicine, which is which I've got strong views on, but that's a discussion for another day. Um, I do think we have the slight advantage here. One of the considerable advantages that the NHS, as we call it, primary care-led. So GPs absolutely dominate the NHS system. And if you can get GPs to change their practice, it, the, the whole system will have to change because they're pivotal in the, in the system. And I, and I think that's a good thing. I think that's the right thing. So, so uh, it's yeah. easier for us to win or I don't know. Look, we are, we are trying to do that, okay? We are trying to uh, make it so that uh, doctors have the ability, okay, to actually, uh, they have the knowledge and they have the ability to make behavior change possible. Um, I didn't think that that was going to be the case. Uh, I, I didn't have that. Okay. I didn't have that when I first started this. There was no Society of Metabolic Health Practitioners. You know, the public health collaboration was just in its infancy, you know. And uh, so, you know, in Low Carb USA, which is the main conferences that happen here in Low Carb Denver, they were just really starting. So, yeah. No organization at all, but that's changing, right? Yeah. And we're changing that. We have made a certification process so doctors and can become certified in the ethics and the you know baseline knowledge they need to be able to make behavior change. We've offered doctors they can network with um, so they can kind of become better at what they do. So um, I, we're trying to be that change. I mean, exactly what you said. We're trying to be better at what we do. And uh, it's, it's been awesome. I mean, patients, like I get people coming out to me, you know, we have, we have been singly responsible for about 40,000 pounds reduced. We have reduced 40. I can't even count how many people we've come off insulin. Yep. Right. Uh, and uh, we have a program that will be published soon. I don't want to go into too much of it, but we are able to cost insurance companies and employer and employers who are the people who insure the biggest wide variety of people, we're able to save them money with our program. Absolutely. Yeah, through yeah. pharmaceutical deprescription. Yes. So uh, we are excited about the future and we're showing that metabolic health, it is a win-win-win situation where the physicians can be excited about what they're doing and won't experience burnout. The patients win with their health 
okay? And we'll see outcomes, their own outcomes and the fruits of their labor and their environment that supports them. And whoever's paying for the insurance benefits. And so we're going to be adding to that literature uh, very, you know, very, you know, pretty much soon. Uh, so that's still, that's some exciting things coming along the way. So, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. On the first, on the face of it, the no brainer, right? It's a win for the physician. It's a win, it's a win for the patient and it's a win for the payor, whether it's the NHS or the health insurance company. There are two people for whom it's not a win and that's big food and big pharma. Correct. And I believe that big food has polluted food research well, for 100 plus years, more than I'd ever realized. I had Robert Lustig on the podcast, and if um, I'm sure you're aware of his latest uh, book, Metabolical, stunning oh, yeah. book. And I would recommend it to anyone who wants to understand both the physiology and the politics of, of all this fa fantastic, inspirational guy. Um, and he told me something that I'd never understood. I'd always assumed that the cigarette industry taught the sugar industry what to do. And it turns out it was the other way around. The sugar industry approached the cigarette industry and said, you guys have a problem. We've dealt with this problem for a lot longer than you have and we can help you fix it. And it was a much worse than I ever realized. And it goes back well over a hundred years. So I guess the question is, given that, you know, it took what, the truth about smoking 40 years to come out, you go back 40 years, of course, it was smoke the brand that your doctor smokes. And the industry had known for 40 years, you know, what the consequence of smoking was. But even today, the tobacco industry denies that there's any scientific link between smoking and lung cancer, even today. But no one needs to smoke, of course, everyone needs to eat. How, do you, what do you think about this paradigm of big food and big pharma on, on the other? Because it makes the vested interest of smoking look like nothing. Yeah, um, so this is fundamental for our patients to understand, but the patients can't understand it if the doctors don't understand it. There are systems of control when it comes to obesity and poor metabolic health. And the first system is yourself, right? That system is, okay, what are the things keeping me stuck? Hunger, cravings, feelings of deprivation, inability to manage social situations, inability to manage vacations, holidays, recovering quickly when you go off track, uh, the shame, the guilt that often keeps people stuck in preventing behavior change. Uh, not, and these are the, the internal systems, understanding really the drive to eat and how different yeah. foods affect our hunger and our physiology, understanding what food addiction is. Um, and and how to and how that me how that may be preventing behavior change. So these are the internal systems that people need to address. Now, once you go to external systems, the first and foremost is all of those people that benefit from your ill health, pharmaceutical companies, yeah. okay, and their influence over your dietitians, doctors, and nutritionists, and diet, you know, et cetera. The, uh, the processed food and big food industries, right? Um, you know, the fitness and wellness industry, the supplement industry, all of these predatory industries. Of course, your yeah. doctor makes more money off of you being sick. Your pharmacist makes more money off you being sick. So all these, none of these people, not to say they're harming you, but they don't have a vested interest in your health. I don't think somebody's sitting there at a food company saying, let's make Tro into a 350-pound doctor. But they are saying that in a different way. They're saying... Yeah. 
know, um, how can we cater to our best, you know, our, our, how do we make people recurring customers? How do we cater to our best clients? How do we so, get people addicted to the food? And then the pharma industry says, how can we make these drugs lifetime? Everything you yeah. can think of, lifetime. Yeah, so, so the systems there, you have to understand those systems, right? Yeah. Uh, and those systems, uh, so there's the internal system and then there's external systems. And, and the easiest system to understand is all the people that benefit of your ill health. That's easy. Big food, big pharma, medical systems, uh, uh, you know, the wellness industry, supplement industry, et cetera, right? Then there's a whole layer outside of that, right? There's a whole layer outside of that layer. So you have the internal layer, right? The psychology, the emotions, the food addiction, the cravings, the hunger, the social situation. You have the, you know, all those financially meeting. And then there's another layer outside of that that keeps people kind of stuck and in control. And that's things like societal norms, culture, habits, uh, what's acceptable, you know, like the minute you're on a diet, your family members just say, well, just try a little bit of it, you know, yeah. what's a little bit won't hurt you. And the cultural norms we've been eating, you know, we've been finishing our plates for, you know, 15 years. So that's why I have to finish my plate. And, you know, I, I grew up, you know, with my parents telling me X, Y, and Z every year at birthday, my grandma made, you know? So the thing is our society and our cultural, you know, uh, uh, our, the different cultural uniquenesses in our own habits and our own, uh, all of this is another system of control. And that's not even discussing another system of control outside of that, which is your own genetics, your drive to eat, the natural drive to eat. You know, you'll find, you know, goats that climb up vertical dams for salt. I mean, you're dealing with a drive to eat that will put you in danger for a yep. substance. So fundamentally, you know, our patients need to understand this, but first and foremost, we got to teach this to our freaking doctors, Absolutely. you know, we have to, so when we educate our patients in our app, in our meetings on, uh, as you know, uh, and through our, you know, uh, through just direct medical care, it is fundamentally, you need to understand the systems that are keeping you under control because most people don't understand it. They think it's just my willpower. No, when you're in that supermarket pushing your cart and you know, it's not you, right? There's 15 food scientists behind that, 15 marketers behind that, you know, a whole, you know, a drive to eat, genetic drive behind that. There's cultural norms that say it's okay to eat that. There's dietitians who say have it in moderation. There's an industry that's waiting for you to have it so they can pick up the pieces. So. This idea of willpower, this myopic focus on willpower, it's a joke in my opinion. Yeah. And it serves no, not our patients at all. What's that? Personal responsibility. Yeah, it's a bunch personal of bullshit. Personal responsibility, it's your fault. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, it's it's yeah. it's true in a sense, but it's kind of like, you know, hey, if you if you get a flat tire and you call the, the tire company to come help you, the we have AAA here in the States. I don't know what you guys have in the UK. You know, if you have a service where you can call. Yeah, whatever. You know, imagine they said, well, listen, you just need to be a better driver. Like, you need yeah. to take personal responsibility for your driving. That's not, that is not what we would do. You know, we have an, don't you know, we have an epidemic of flat tires in the UK. Like, those flat <laughs> tires fill up. They're environmentally really unsafe. Like, you should just use less tires. You know, it's a joke. 
our approach to Love you. It. So you get it on multiple levels there on the climate and the personal responsibility all in one. But yeah. the thing is, it's a joke. We would not tolerate this messaging for anything else. If we call up the bank and say, hey, there's something wrong with my bank account. And they're like, well, you just need to earn more than you spend. And that's your problem, you know, Mr. Phillips. You know, that's it. You know, that's how to get your bank, you know. But no, I got a problem with my bank account. I need help. You know, well, no, you know, personal responsibility, it only goes so far. And it's only fair if you have equal footing and an equal understanding and you understand what you're up against, you know. Absolutely. And that's, it's just, uh, I think it's bogus. Yeah. Oh, my God, I'm going to get hurt for that one. You know, people are not going to be, they all want to believe it's me. You know, I cannot tell you. I have had over a thousand people tell me, you know, if you ask somebody, why did you eat the thing you didn't want to eat? Whatever it was. Yeah. I don't care what it was. I'm not going to judge you. Why did you eat that? You're, you're paying a lot of money to see me. You're, you have diabetes. You want to lose weight. Why did you eat that pizza last week? Mm. What do people say? I wanted it. It's my fault. I should have done better. I needed more self-control, more discipline. It was there. It tastes good. You know, it's what I've always done. It was easy. Right? Well, you ask him, well, how about if I showed up and... I had an almond flour crust. I had a meat crust. Tastes great. You love it. And it's going to fill you up. It's not going to make you more hungry. What do you do then? They're like, of course I'd eat that. You know, of course I'd eat that. Well, then it's not a willpower issue. It's a community issue, an advocacy issue, a willpower. You know, it's it's not a willpower issue, knowledge issue, a support issue, a preparation issue. Right? So most people, they're not good self-judges and they rely on this myopic focus on willpower and personal responsibility and they're not thinking what am i missing anyway you know you're absolutely right um i know one of the things that we mentioned in the preamble was food addiction and you've kind of hinted at that in that so that classic patient client that you're talking about who's got the obesity who's food addicted struggling Uh, not not obesity sorry to interrupt i thought so remember obesity is a symptom of food addiction in some cases right but there are some people who will binge become anorexic exercise and because of you know intense shame and guilt and self-pressure may not be able to overcome that so remember that so 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 we set, but I cannot tell you how many people come to me with binge eating and normal weight or, or a, like not obese, you know, yeah. just overweight, but they are struggling, you yeah. know? So sorry, I didn't mean to, I know I, yeah. No, no, no I, I, I completely agree, agree with that. So <clears throat> because there's a presumption that the fat people are sick and that the slim people are healthy and actually the evidence is much less clear than that yes the fat sick the fatter people tend to be sicker and the slimmer people on average are healthier but it's far far more nuanced so that's your typical patient client what's your approach because i know what mine is you get someone who comes to see you in those circumstances how do you deconstruct it where do you start um yeah so i mean we have a systematic approach uh it's pretty much all spelled out in the app I think, um, you know, uh, I think really it starts with awareness of these systems of control, 
right? So you cannot fight something that you don't know. If you don't know what you're fighting, you cannot fight it. So yeah. if you're trying to fight obesity, fight binge eating, fight cravings, fight hunger, fight diabetes, and you don't know what you're actually fighting, you know, it's, um, you're not going to win. So yeah. you need to understand, you need to be aware of what your journey will entail, right? And, and people need to respect our drive to eat. You know, our drive to eat is very complicated. I can describe, I can give a one hour lecture on 10 different types of hunger that a person will experience. I can describe probably 20 different types of, I, I shouldn't say hunger, but triggers to eat. Yep. Right? And so if you're, if your goal is to manage something that is food related or exacerbated by food, right, um, then you have to understand that journey uh, or you have to find somebody who could teach you what you need to know to fight that journey. So it, it's really a fundamental lack of knowledge. It's yeah. kind of like, OK, if you know that drug dealer doesn't give a crap about you and is just trying to get you to become a recurring customer, well, avoid the drug dealer, understand the impulses you're facing get methadone if you need, you know, or whatever. So it's understand the journey ahead of you. Um, and then it's, you know, we can pull a lot from medicine, from the addiction model, right? From the 12 steps model and the, the uh, you know, the Alcoholics Anonymous model. People need a preparation, community and support. They need to cultivate self-advocacy and understand that this man- drive to eat is manipulative fundamentally, you know, it will manipulate, you know, your self-advocacy. It'll manipulate your mentality, your logic. I mean, I'll just tell you, it'll manipulate your emotions. Yeah. What it, you know, like when my wife would t- tell me, hey, Tro, don't eat that pizza. I used to feel, you know, agitated, angry, stubborn, opposition defiant. Leave me alone. I know what I'm doing. I'm a grown man, right? Yeah. And yet if my wife said, yep. hey, Tro, you got this flat tire in your car. I would never say, leave me alone. I know what I'm doing. I'm going to drive on this car. You know, I'm not, you know, like we just wouldn't yeah. do it. So if you can fundamentally understand how this journey you are may have been fundamentally manipulated to, and if you understand the systems of control, then you can start to break free and make lasting behavior change, you know, and then uh, that's step one, you know, and that does, that takes time. You know, yeah. you and I could probably talk about that for hours and we're like oh, professionals yeah. who have studied and you know what I mean? Like, you yeah. know, it, so it's hard. Imagine being a lay person with a high school education, with minimal income, yeah. with three yelling kids and a husband who's not supportive. You know, it's it's not. So it starts with awareness. Yeah. Sorry. Um, um, you got me. I'll talk for hours. You know, you got me. No, no, I, I love your passion, Tro. And um um, I've had Jen Ahmed on the podcast recently and we've talked about her approach and I really learned a lot from Jen around giving people hope. And I often say to people now, okay, you know, we'll review their CGM data. There's a big spike. And they, and they kind of apologize. I said, look, I'm, I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to support you. So d- don't worry about that. What drove you to eat it? It was their family gathering, all the social norms that you say, or I was just somewhere where there was all the food there was. And, you know, what we know doesn't work is scaring people. 
But if you can get them try to imagine, I call it the tyranny of food, because, I mean, like you, I was a fat kid. I, I wasn't obese, but I was a fat kid. And I went on to be a fat adult, and I understand those food cravings. I don't think I'm quite food addictive. I think I probably stopped before I got to that point. <clears throat> but I certainly have no self-control. And the way that Karen and I manage us is we just don't buy that food. So when you go to the fridge, the pizza and all those addictive things simply aren't there. And I feel like, I mean, I used to be hungry all the time. And the hunger I got, the fatter I got, the fatter I got, the hunger I got. And yet I knew all the perceived science. And I call it the tyranny of food. And I feel that I've escaped the tyranny of food. Why? Because now I know what those addictive foods are and I avoid them. And interestingly, I've broadly speaking lost the taste for them now. And it takes a good four to six weeks. And I'm sure, you know, that you can go back. But I haven't eaten pizza now for years. But in the middle of the COVID crisis, when I was back on the front line in the pharmacy, and we were there from dawn to dusk, and I said to the team, you know, you've worked flat out, literally, what do you want? They wanted a pizza. I wasn't going to start lecturing them, right? So we ordered the bloody pizza. Who ate the most of the pizza at the end? I, I ate it, right? Me who never eats a pizza, right? The next day, I felt so bloody unwell. I can't tell you, I could hardly move the next day. I felt so dreadful. And it was the best thing that could have happened because you know what? That's it. Me and pizza, That's we're done with pizza. Uh, I got to tell you, we got to make you a nice uh, meat pizza one day so you can enjoy your pizza. You know, a little bit of Rao sauce. I don't know what you guys have there, but... We have this very low sugar tomato sauce and, uh, you know, you use a nice almond flour crust or even chicken crust or meat crust. And then you get yeah. some cheese on it. You put some pizza seasoning and it's like, it's low carb, man. You will not yeah. feel like crap the next day. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's, uh, look, we cannot shut off our ability to remember, right. Awesome foods. We cannot. Right. People who never grew up with it as a kid, they may not have ever had it. They may be in more control. But remember that if you've been exposed to these things, it's very hard to shut them off. Yeah. Right. Any other animal, if they knew what a good food was, they would not forget where that good food is. They'll keep coming back for more. So we can't expect us to just shut that. Like we can't turn a switch and be like, no more pizza. You know, but we can recognize what it does. We can recognize how it makes us feel. We can recognize that there's better ways to do that than we have done it. And uh, we can't escape the drive to eat. I tell people, you know, look, look, you're, you're craving for pizza. It's kind of like holding in your pee, right? You can probably hold in your pee, sorry, for a long time. Yeah. Okay, this Twitter troll coming out. You can hold it in for a long time, long, long time. At some point, you're going to pee on yourself or you're going to pee in the toilet, right? Yeah. So bet, better bet is to acknowledge that you're human and you – have to pee at some point and just pee in that toilet, right? Yeah. So you got a craving for pizza. And it's like, hey, we're human. Your intention is to be a great driver. You're not planning on using that spare tire. Nobody's sitting there putting that spare tire in because they think they're a terrible driver and they're a terrible human. And, you know, but like, you know, what I tell people is rather than ever having to struggle in that moment, I would just make a pizza that works for you or take the toppings off. You know yeah. what? You want the pizza, take the toppings off. Now you ate it on your terms. You get the taste, you get the flavor, you ate it on your terms. But don't, you know, 
delude yourself to think you're going to feel great after eating pizza one hour, two hours later, or, or the next day. In fact, you're going to be more hungry the next day. You're going to be more hungry two or three hours later, and you're going to feel like crap. And the scale is going to be up 10 pounds of water. Yeah. So don't get stuck in the shame and blame cycle. Just, hey, you know, this is a learning opportunity. Move on to what works for you. The worst thing you can do is not eating the pizza because that's human, right? Wanting the pizza is human, right? Yeah. Just learn what to do better next time. And then when, when that next day comes, you know, never say, you know what, I'll just keep eating this way. I'll start again tomorrow. No, go back to the stuff, that, the foods that you know, make yourself, forgive yourself, make yourself a low carb pizza or, you know, meat crust pizza or something like that. And then just move on. You know, move on and go back to the diet that makes you feel good. And what you've, you know, just said is so, you know, it's like true. We are here. We are. You and I are advanced in our careers. And, you know, certainly you've done a lot more than I have. But, you know, we're trying to, you know, we're trying to make a difference, but we still struggle. Yep. No, we can't escape those drives. Yep. Uh, and so. And give us yeah. empathy for our patients, right? Yeah. So, so look, the bottom line is, is we struggle, you know? And so, you know, acknowledging that struggle and learning from it and using it as a teaching opportunity for our patients, that is the real, you know, that is the real work. And so I think the model for, you know, that sponsor and meeting model, you know, that, that alcoholism and other addictions have, I'm not to say obesity is exact obesity and not all obesity is an addiction. Not all addiction is obesity, but both of them can benefit from community support and one-on-one -on -one coaching. Um, I am um, early in my career. Um, they deregulated nicotine replacement therapy. And I was fairly recently qualified. And at that point it wasn't available through the health system. So I became a smoking cessation specialist and I've helped hundreds of people quit. And in fact, when the NHS then introduced smoking cessation, I trained the GPs, not the other way around, because I've been doing it for 10 or 15 years. What I can say is the parallels of food addiction and smoking addiction are remarkably high. And all, as you said, the 12-step program, I, I, you know, of course, officially, there's no such thing as food addiction. It's not classified. Why isn't it classified? Big food doesn't want it to be classified. Because if you could officially tell patients that McDonald's and Doritos were addictive, wouldn't suit their business model. But I still think we should keep keep plugging away at that. And I yeah. also it'll it'll happen. It's gonna be complicated because we need food to survive. So but I think we can expand upon binge eating. I don't love the term binge eating because you know, we don't call it binge drinking or binge smoking, or we call it tobacco dependence, alcohol dependence. It is yeah. food addiction is a great term. It is a proper term. Uh, yeah. And we have to fundamentally also say that, you know, like unlike any other addiction, we need food to survive. So we have to caveat that with, you know, we have to find it is worse than an addiction. Yeah, it is still within an addiction because you can live without smoking and you can live without heroin, but you cannot live without food. Yeah. So, um, so I think it should be its own special category: food addiction. Yeah. You know, no, we're agreed. Um, you 
we, you were talking about your research earlier on and um, what's to happen. And I, I, I assume that you've got, <coughs> there's only so much you can say pre-publication, but I didn't want to let the opportunity go without giving you an opportunity to at least expand a bit on that. Yeah, look, so I, I've had a, uh, so I've used, so, so largely I've operated under the uh, requirement, the need for an IRB, because, you know, the first couple of papers I did were case series. You know, it was three patients, four patients. And when you do a a case series, you don't need an institutional review board to say this is medical research. I'm a doctor and I see things in my clinic and I want to publish them. Yep. So our first uh, major paper was a paper on binge eating and food addiction symptoms. And we published a case series with Dr. Eric Westman, Dr. Sethi, Dr. Uh, uh, Laszlo. And it was low-carb eating and binge eating. Uh, And it was a case series of three patients uh, two of which came from my clinic. Yeah. Now, uh, that's been like widely cited now, 20 plus you know, citations since 2020. And then the second paper I did was on hypertriglyceridemia, severe hypertriglyceridemia. Right now, the National Lipid Association says, if you got hypertriglyceridemia, you can't do keto. It's a contraindication. And it's based on you know, uh, grade C, I mean, like the worst level of evidence, which is basically expert opinion. So what we rubbish devoid of science, let's be honest. (laughs) Yes. What we did was add to the scientific literature. We took uh, three patients in my clinic who had monstrously high triglyceride levels, uh, you know, over a thousand. And we showed week by week when we lower the triglyceride, when we lower the carbs and do not restrict fat or protein in any way, uh, the triglycerides reliably drop down. Right. And so we published that again, attacking the convention. So realize, you know, the convention is uh, food addiction, uh, uh, you know, eating disorders are worsened by restrictive diets. We showed that binge eating improved with a, a low carb diet. Yeah. Then they said, you know, high triglycerides, you can't do low carb. And then we showed actually it improves the triglycerides. The third So you're going to see a theme now. The third paper I did was attacking the ADA. So we attacked the NLA, we attacked the APA, and then the third paper. The um, the English audience won't know who those are. Those three letter acronyms. So spell it out. The American Diabetes Association. Yeah. So the the first paper with binge eating targeted the guidelines from the American uh, uh, Psychology Association and. The, uh, the second paper targeted the National Lipid Association. Yeah. And the third paper, you know, which our third paper, we took three patients who came in with an A1C of 12. I don't know if you guys use millimolar, but that's an average sugar in the 200s. Yeah. And, uh, and that's wildly diabetic. Most physicians would agree need insulin. And we showed that without significant weight loss, their A1C normalized while yeah. stopping medications without insulin. Yep. So one of the, you know, if you look at the ADA guidelines, the American Diabetes Association guidelines, it says, yeah, low carb is all great, but, you know, you can do any diet really and calories are what matter and weight loss. So we showed, we specifically did not encourage them to count calories and we specifically encouraged them to lower carbohydrates. And we specifically said, we're not focused on weight loss up front. We just want to normalize your sugars. And yep. what we showed in these three patients, this case series of three, was that with minimal weight loss, it was on average five pounds. We reduced A1C by six points. 
which yep. is one pound per A1C reduction. I don't yep. know. Do you use minimolar or A1C? I forget. Yeah, minimolar, yeah. Oh, so I don't know if you could yeah. count. I don't know how to convert that off the top of my head. But, Fine. you know, don't it's worry. a monstrous reduction of A1C, yeah, yeah, yeah. more powerful than even insulin therapy, you know, with minuscule weight loss. Right? Essentially, it's reducing the amount of blood sugar in your bloodstream from one sp- from three spoonfuls to one, more or less. Correct. Yes. And yeah. one spoonful is the, is the amount that you should normally have as a maximum. Yeah, I love the spoon model. That's an awesome way of putting it. Dr. Dave yeah. Unwin, huge props to him. I love him. My yeah. wife loves him. My wife says, why can't you be more like him? You know, so <laughs> um, look, the... The thing is, is that we, why did we publish this? Because they say, you know, calories are what matter. It's not the carbs, it's not the diet and it's weight. Well, we showed yeah. it's not the weight. Absolutely. So it's not the weight, it's the carbs. So then this fourth study we did, which was showing how uh, people on a low carb diet can experience LDL increases, right? It's very common, if you, especially if you lose a lot of weight and get very lean to see that LDL go up, but all the other yeah. parameters improve. And this has been coined as a term lean mass hyperresponder. So working with Dave Feldman, we took a case series of our patients in our clinic who we reintroduced a very tiny amount of carbohydrates because we looked into the literature, we understood what drives that LDL increase. And it's not what the convention thinks, which is saturated fat and, uh, uh, um, you know, which they think is the cause of that LDL increase. Sometimes besides the saturated fat, it is just the carbohydrate restriction and the time restriction that ele- in a lean person that elevates that LDL. Yeah. And it can see monstrous changes. And you see that in the literature. You know as a pharmacist that SGLT2 inhibitors lower glucose. And what do they do? Yeah. Increase LDL. And what do, what do you know, uh, if you look in the literature, anorexia patients, patients who are doing Ramadan fasting, all experience increases in LDL. So I went to Dave and I said- question, Pro. Here's the question, right? Why is it that L- increase in LDL is going to kill patients if they do it low carb, but if the same thing results from an SGLT2 inhibitor, it's somehow a wonderful thing? Explain oh, don't that. Get You're triggering me right now. So what we did with the data was we literally showed them, hey, if you see these monstrous elevations, you yeah. can add back a very modest amount of carbohydrates, still low carb, 50 grams of carbs, and going from you know very low carb you know, maybe up to 100 grams of carbs, and those LDL changes reverse. So we published those findings, again, from a case series from our patients. We worked with David Ludwig, who really was so instrumental to make that paper great. We used Dave Feldman's data set to show what causes the LDL increase or what's associated with the LDL increase. Um, And bottom line is, you know, what did we do? We attacked the mantra. The mantra is is this all saturated fat. And you're absolutely right. What cause, you know, cancer lowers LDL. It doesn't mean we should lower LDL with cancer, you know. Um, But the bottom line is, yes, you know, now this newest paper, which is what you asked me about, took a long time to get there. Uh, My wife says I talk too much. But, um, (laughs) you know, this newest paper, what we're doing is we were asked by an employer to do a metabolic health program in their corporation. And what we were able to show is, uh, well, what we think we're going to show, we're still not yet done crunching the numbers and doing everything. What we're going to be showing is, hopefully, if the data supports that, 
is that we were not only able to reduce 38 pounds per patient within six months or 35 or so pounds, reduce their A1C, reduce their blood pressure, but we are likely, I suspect, just off the top of my head, thinking about this data in each patient, we're able to reduce their 10-year atherosclerotic risk a significant oh, amount. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Right? So we're going to actually show, uh, hopefully, if the data supports it, if we you know, get uh, everywhere we need to be, we have, we're waiting for the IRB to give us the green light. Uh, we're waiting for the IRB to say, this is okay to do. We got medical approval. The ethicist is sitting on it, you know, because I told them, hey, look, I have a podcast and I have an app and you just need to know these conflicts. So they're just weighing if it's okay to do this research. And once they give us the green light, we're going to put it together and hopefully make sure it looks good and send it to the uh, journal and, and see if we can get it approved. But I suspect we may see um, just knowing each of the patients I've, I've worked with, you know, that we're able to um, have a significant impact outside of, you know, conventional things like diabetes and, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, weight, that we may be actually improving their 10-year risk. You will absolutely improve. How can you not? I mean, absolutely. Well, keto kills, so we'll, we'll, well, we'll find out. blood pressure out. will come down. Their weight will come down. Their sleep will improve. Their mood will improve. Their HDL to Triggs ratio will improve. And I'm sure that if you are tracking coronary artery calcium, that would be, you know, at least stable and going in the right direction, if not improving. Well, we'll find out. Yeah. So yeah. When, when, are you hoping to when are you hoping to publish all, all things? I don't going? know. It's, in the, it's sitting in the IRB right now. And, and uh, so the IRB... You know, the medical reviewer said, great, the ethicist is looking at it. So I just hope it goes through and we're able to do this and publish it. But, you know, I, I can't predict these things. So, you know, who knows how long they'll sit on it, <laughs> you know, but uh, but hopefully pretty soon. Brilliant. Just, and I'm conscious of your time, um, I listened to one of your early podcasts um, with Ethan Weiss. Ah, okay. And he and I are having some interesting. I'm not quite as fierce on Twitter as you are, but you know, I I hold my ground. And he and I, and David Diamond and et al, are having some interesting, shall we say, conversations. And I remember you asking him. This is back in 2018. And so, to be fair, you've been on a journey since then. How worried should we be about LDL? And you can't see in your patient a correlation between their coronary artery calcium, which is a much better risk predictor. I mean, to me, HDL, TRIGS, insulin resistance, CAC, is far more meaningful than LDL. What's your take on that now? Because my view is LDL is broadly speaking in irrelevance, and it's the wrong marker, and it never was a good marker. Um, but the statin industry obviously doesn't want to believe that. How do you see it now? Um... Yeah, I think it's still something I pay attention to. I think I like the voices of David Diamond because we need highly critical voices out there in the world. Uh, we need voices that challenge mantra and demand more evidence. So I like the voices that say we need more to do what we're doing. We need to, you know, just like inappropriate antibiotics. You want somebody out there saying antibiotics are great, guys, but really we shouldn't give it for viral, you know, bronchitis. Right. So like we've done this with bronch like antibiotics. So yeah. it should be OK, acceptable and appropriate 
for people like Ethan Weiss to champion David Diamond and say, your voice is important, what your work is important, and I'm reading your I'm reading your point and trying to make sense of it. So I think Ethan Weiss, just knowing him, he's, you know, um, how can I say this without speaking for him? I mean, I would say speak for him, and, you know, but I think, you know, um, he has to pick up the pieces. You know, uh, he has to pick up the pieces, which is patients who come to us with a high risk, who I saw on Twitter, and I think you were part of that conversation, very high risk patient. Hmm. I don't know the whole story behind that patient from the information he shared online. He's high risk, right? Or at least greater than average risk. Yep. And his doctor was taking him off his statin because of David Diamond's work. Now, I almost think that that's the worst possible case scenario, you know, uh, where somebody's high risk and their doctor is. There's not- more to it in that case, but it's something I know personally, but I, I, I won't talk about it because I think it will be un- unethical. So I think that was a side show. Um, yeah, but, but if you look at it. But this is where I, I'm disappointed with Ethan, right? Because I listened to him on your podcast. I thought he was thoughtful and nuanced. What disappointed me is instead of engaging with David on the evidence, he just said, your paper's a load of crap, so I haven't read it. I mean, you know, why not take the paper apart and disagree with it thoughtfully? Why just so, push it? That's, what, so, that's where I differ with it. I 100% agree with you, right? So, so I'll tell you where I agree with Ethan is that it's complicated. And I messaged him offline. I said, the David Diamonds of the world aren't the problem. They're actually needed voices it's bad doctors that are the problem, mm. right? It's bad doctors that are the problem. Doctors, you know, like if you come in with a rip-roaring pneumonia and your pneumonia severity index is through the roof and you have a 20% in-hospital mortality and they don't start antibiotics because they're worried about inappropriate antibiotic use, that's insane. Yep. Right? That's insane. So the question becomes, you know, who are the right people to to give a statin to? And I Absolutely. I... And that's where I may disagree with Dave Diamond because I may love what he does and love his message and love his work, but ultimately I have to care for the people in front of me. And so I think Ethan's on the other end where he's like, no, people like that make my job harder. They make it harder for people who really need it to go on statins and, you know, and they're, you know, what he has no business in this field. You know, and I don't I'm not saying that's right because I agree with you. They should just be able to engage, you know, but I think, you know, probably uh, Dave looks at Ethan as you're so entrenched in your views. And Ethan looks at Dave like you're entrenched in your views, you know, and and, any of us. that kind of that's why I said at the beginning that I, I won't be part of a cult. Because yeah. that does, that's not going to advance any dialogue, is it? The only thing I would say, I don't know if you read Malcolm uh, Kendrick's latest book. Yeah, The Clot Thickens. I have it. I haven't read it yet, but I read his first book. So Yeah, read The Clot Thickens and it may change your view. It certainly changed mine. I, 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 don't, I don't think it'll change my view, but I'm happy to read it. Um, um, you know, certainly I've read Asim's book. I've read, you know, I, I get it. Like, I get I get it. There's more to it and we're missing something. I get, I get it. Um, You know, I think, uh, you know, I think the other thing is like, you know, who are the right people? And I'm hoping to have this discussion with Dave Diamond because, you know, 
he he's very much looked and he's going to come on the podcast, which I can't wait to do. But there's probably somebody who will benefit and from statin therapy. And so can we can we find those people? And when you look at Malcolm Kendrick and and when you look at Asim Malhotra, they probably say 20 percent risk or higher with with or without, you know, most like with calcium. Those are more likely to benefit versus low risk people. So how do we determine, you know, who are the people that will benefit according to the data? Absolutely. Who is in the gray zone? You know, it's like who should get an antibiotic? You know what I mean? Like it's a legitimate question to ask. Who should get a statin? You know, uh, who is the right person? And look, you're going to give antibiotics to about ten people to treat the one, the one or two people that probably will see a benefit from it. And so you have to, you know, you have to weigh these things together. You know, you know they're complicated. That's it. And. Yeah. You know, I am also discouraged because Ethan Weiss asked for more data. You know, when he said, what is this LMHR phenomenon? We need more data. And then when we put the data out there, Ethan was like, I can't trust this data. Tro, your data is worthless. Dave, your data is worthless. It's a survey and a case series. Yeah. And then he's already criticizing the data Dave Feldman is making with the with the uh, LMHR study, with the serial CCTAs. Yeah. He's already criticizing it. Like, bro, you asked for more data. You asked for more data, and you're attacking the people making the data. Yeah. So and it's a that, shame. Because I think Ethan's better than that. He was certainly better than that on your podcast. I don't uh, – yeah. things that – I don't know. I don't know what's changed. I think maybe he's just disenfranchised. I've asked him personally yeah. if things are okay. You know, I don't know. You know, we don't know. Maybe he's seen too many people get heart attacks and stop statins when they needed them. You know, um, imagine people were coming to you dying of pneumonia or or getting severe pneumonia because they didn't want to take antibiotics. I'm, I'm sure that's how he's viewing it. Yeah. No, I absolutely I have people coming to me who don't want to take statins and I look at their risk and I say, take the bloody statin. So let me be very clear. I'm not part of an anti-statin cult. My objection is the excess overuse of statins, just as it would be my excess and over, overuse of antibiotics. But I'm not the pharmacist who never says take an antibiotic. Neither am I the pharmacist that says never take a statin. It's horses for courses based on the evidence. So, listen, Tro, we could talk for hours. This um, has been awesome, man. This has been so I've great. really enjoyed it. I, I love Tro in full, full flow. We've had the benefit of that. <laughs> In all its might and glory, um, and I'd love, I'd love to have you on again at some point, and maybe cover other ground that we haven't been able to cover. Because you know, out of your two hundred and forty podcasts, we scratched the surface, uh, and there's lots more that we could talk about. Um, but I feel that we should probably conclude. Is there anything um, we'll put all the social contacts and, and so on uh, in, in the podcasts? Um, we'll link to. Um, everything that you've published on your website and socials and so forth. Is there anything that we haven't covered we really should before we conclude? No, no, that's it. I mean, it's been a pleasure. It's nice to meet a kindred spirit and, uh, yeah. you know, it's, um, there's a lot of work to do. So we all need each other and, and, uh, you know, and yeah, you know, my social media is all there and you can message us, you know, we have a new doctor. So we're in 50 States. So if somebody's in the United States, Message us. We're happy to help. We have an app, an educational app. Anybody in the world can get it. 
Dr. Tro spelled out and that's it. If we can help you, you know, um, uh, we're trying to just uh, do good work. You know, that's it. What stands out for me, Tro, is your passion and your absolute determination to fight for your patients. And, and, you know, we need more doctors like that to shape the world up. Please keep, keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, you know who's my, my spirit animal? Asim Mahaltra. Yeah. He's my spirit animal, you know? I'll tell you that well, right now. Asim and I are great friends and we've known each other a long time and he's a very, very brave man. You know, as I've said, um, we've had him on the pod and I said, look, you could have made a very nice living as a cardiologist, you know, stenting people and, and giving them prescriptions for statins. And people say he's got a book to sell. What they don't say is he makes no profit from the book. And he does all of this stuff, almost all of it for free. He's been a great inspiration. And he, he, yeah, absolutely. So yeah. uh, thank you so much for your time. And uh, look forward to catching up with you in the future and the publication of your studies. Yeah, I can't. I, hopefully it comes out. Hopefully we get it through, you know. The IRB was a new thing for me. I had never gone through that. I had never had an interest in research. So, you know, we all have to grow and learn in some way. So, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. research, formalized research in this way, not clinical, you know, observation. It's cool. It's cool. It's a new, new thing. And it's a chance for you to inspire others. So just like David Unwin has done, he's not had started with a research background. He's published a lot now. Brilliant. Okay. Thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed the chat. If you enjoyed the podcast and want to find out more, join our Wellness and Pro Longevity Facebook group. Don't forget to subscribe and follow so you never miss an episode and maybe share to friends and family who might benefit. Finally, if you think you might need help with diabetes, heart disease or any of the other diseases we discuss, then book a free consultation with Graham. There's absolutely no charge for this and we would never put you under any pressure. What do you have to lose? Bye for now and see you for the next episode.